Welcome back to Core Conversations, a CoreLogic podcast. I am your host, May Claire Bolton-Smith, and I'm the Senior Leader of Research and Content Strategy with CoreLogic. In this podcast, we'll have conversations with industry experts about key topics from housing affordability to the impacts of natural disasters on property. At CoreLogic, one of the areas we keep close tabs on is how weather and climate affect property, as this could have some surprising downstream effects, from homes being destroyed, to the impacts of construction material demand surge, to long-term ramifications on loans and home prices in the area. Natural hazards have a way of upending life as we know it. The CoreLogic Hazard HQ team keeps a close eye on the state of weather, covering catastrophes in the U.S. and even around the world, all of which, if you haven't checked it out yet, you can find at HazardHQ.com. The Hazard HQ team, filled with scientists, many of whom have appearances on this podcast already, release up-to-date analysis about ongoing hazard activity, and sometimes this can include one of the most discussed and most coveted piece of information, a financial loss estimate. For instance, in 2017, CoreLogic estimated that flood damage in Texas alone from Hurricane Harvey was estimated between 40 and $59 billion. Or in 2018, when the Camp Fire broke a record for the most destructive wildfire in California history, CoreLogic estimated total losses between 11 and $13 billion. These numbers certainly are staggering, and because of it, they've been splashed across TV nightly news. But what do they really mean, and how do we come up with them? So today, we're talking with David Smith, Senior Leader of Science and Analytics, to answer this complex question. David, welcome to CORE Conversations. Thanks, McClure. It's uh, great to be on the podcast. Thanks for having me on. Awesome. Okay, so to get started today, why don't you start by telling our listeners a little bit about yourself and your role here at CoreLogic? Sure. Uh, as you mentioned, I'm one of the senior leaders in the science and analytics group at CoreLogic. Uh, my role um, in particular is in terms of building catastrophe risk models. Catastrophe risk models are designed to quantify risk arising from natural hazard events such as earthquakes, hurricanes, floods, wildfires, and so on. Um, and we do this in the U.S. and around the world. Building them brings together a, a remarkable variety of expertise. You need earthquake scientists, weather scientists, hydrologists, wildfire experts, structural engineers to tell you how different types of buildings will perform, statisticians, actuaries, uh, software experts, and so on. So I get to work with all these amazing people. And as a team, we build some really interesting and useful models. And I can even absorb a little of their knowledge along the way. So my academic background is um, in physical science, uh, in physics and math, and in atmospheric and geophysical sciences. And, and this has provided a great foundation for my career. Uh, formatively, some of my earliest interests growing up may have fed into this. Don't want to oversell <laughs> it necessarily. Uh, but I was, uh, you know, from early years, uh, very fascinated by maps. Um, and a big part of catastrophe risk is definitely the geography of risk. And I also had interests in uh, high-rise buildings and in the world around me. Uh, so I only made the, uh, the connection to catastrophe risk as a, as a career through a bit of luck um, in that a fellow grad student was married to an investment banker who was on a flight and happened to be sitting uh, next to one of the founders of EQE, ah. which was at the time one of the foremost companies uh, looking at earthquake risk. And they, uh, they were looking to expand into other uh, natural hazards. So that conversation, uh, along with a brochure or two, was, was passed along to me. And uh, that's really how I got started in this, this very interesting field. 
the rest is history. So, well, well, I am really happy to have you on here, David. You and I've worked together for a number of years. So really excited to get your views on this important topic. And we've got some kind of late breaking information too that's just unfolded in the last couple of weeks too that we're gonna get into. So before we get to that, um, We've talked about hurricanes, wildfires, tornadoes, earthquakes, extreme freeze, everything on this podcast so far, but we haven't really talked much about event losses. So when a damaging event occurs, CoreLogic will release a loss estimate, which is a form of, you know, billions of dollars or millions or billions of dollars of this amount. But I want to unpack this a little bit. So we talk about loss estimate. We talk about X billion dollars happening in this event. What are we estimating? So when we as, as CoreLogic estimate the losses from an event, uh, what we're estimating uh, primarily are the, the costs to repair and rebuild afterwards. So from whatever damage that event has caused, our um, loss estimates are focused primarily on residential and commercial properties. Um, and when we say commercial, we're talking about things like industrial facilities in addition to things like office buildings and shops and hotels and so on. And in this, we include all the costs, not only to repair, rebuild those properties, but also what it costs to replace or repair their contents mm. and also associated costs of their downtime. Uh, so things like business interruption for commercial properties, things like additional living expenses on the residential side. Uh, we also often break the loss estimates down. Um, you know, For example, by that residential versus commercial, uh, we may look at geography, by state, metro area, and so on, um, and by specific peril. So uh, hurricanes, for example, often come with varying impacts from wind and from storm surge and from rainfall-driven flood, and we, we might break those down, we generally do, um, by those different perils. We also uh, often estimate the portion of losses that are insured, that is, will be covered by insurance companies versus the portion of losses that are uninsured. Mm. Um, and will therefore usually be the responsibility of the property owner. Um, so particularly for perils like flood and earthquake, the uninsured portion of the loss uh, can be very significant. For flood, it's fairly common to see um, roughly 70% or so of the losses to be uninsured. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you just got into that because, you know, I think initially when people hear it's X billion dollars. So let's say an event is a $50 billion loss. People may just intuitively think it's $50 billion to make the city new again, but that's not at all really how it works. And, and I like that you got into some of that. And one of the things that you just kind of mentioned is that insured versus uninsured part. And I think, you know, we've talked about that a little bit more on this podcast, in particular, when we've talked about flooding and how flood losses, and we saw this dramatically in Hurricane Harvey, that there was so much of the flood loss was uninsured. Um, I want to kind of unpack that a little bit and talk about why things are uninsured. So I know on the flood side, we often see a really big gap between what the actual full uninsured losses versus the insured part of it. Whereas on wind for a hurricane, for example, that's a much smaller gap. And it's because there's a lot of insurance with wind. And, and can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, yeah, exactly. So this is a really important area and, and you're, you're already getting into the heart of it. I think, um, you know, one answer is that a typical homeowner's policy, at least as they've evolved over the last few decades, uh, doesn't include things like flood or earthquake. 
Um, so that's that's kind of one of the biggest pieces. So such a policy does cover you know quite a bit from different kinds of natural perils, but mm-hmm. um, but often uh, in, in general it does not cover things like flood or earthquake. Just the way the market has evolved uh, over over decades, last few decades, um, you know there is um, with with a flood for homeowners if you have a mortgage at least you're required if you're within a right. special flood hazard area zone to have that flood insurance. But if you're not within uh, what's basically a, effectively a hundred year flood zone, generally, there's no requirement uh, saying that you have to have flood cover. So it then goes back to the discretion of, of the homeowner and, and sort of the need for them to have an awareness of that risk and balancing that with the cost of the policy and all that. Yeah, I think that is something we've talked about on this podcast a little bit as well, too, about how if you're mandated to have insurance, you get insurance. But if you aren't mandated, you don't necessarily think about it. So that's where the awareness is is such an important part. Um, I think when we think of wind losses and wind being so heavily insured, there's still a small part that is uninsured. Is that just attributed to the deductible? that people have to pay before their insurance kicks in? Or what's the attribution of, of that smaller little bit that that's maybe uninsured in, in the wind side? That's right. So that, that's the other part of it. So yeah, one part is is the properties that just aren't covered for a particular peril like flood, but th- that's exactly right. For wind, uh, what you can often have is, um, yeah, very large deductibles or, uh, or in some cases limits may come into play, uh, but where, uh, where you have an event where you may have sort of widespread levels of kind of low levels of damage, you you may have a big sort of gap between the insured and overall damage for, for that reason, exactly along the lines you're, you're getting at. Okay, that that's helpful. Thank you, David. So, okay, the other, the other comparison I want to get into is sometimes we also will talk about the reconstruction cost estimate for properties at risk. So, uh, you know, usually we look at this prior to landfall of a hurricane. So let's say a hurricane is coming, we'll say these are there's X number of properties at risk with a total reconstruction value of a trillion dollars. A lot of times it's a really big number because there's a lot of properties at risk because there's a lot of uncertainty on where exactly the event's gonna hit. Um, can we talk about how that big number of reconstruction cost is different than the actual loss and, and why it's so different? Right. Yeah. So those uh, reconstruction cost values or, or RCVs. Uh, so individually, they represent the cost to rebuild a building in the event of a total loss. So if it's completely destroyed, what does it cost to rebuild it? And and, and that's right. We often do issue uh, statements about sort of the total amount of RCV that's potentially in harm's way from an incoming event. And, and that's really the key word. It's potentially uh, in at risk. And so when, uh, let's say, uh, a uh, hurricane comes in when it actually hits um, geographically, perhaps only a portion of that total area that we've looked at is is really going to be significantly affected. And for mm-hmm. sure, many of the properties aren't going to be completely destroyed. So I think that's really where we start to see that big difference between sort of the total reconstruction cost of what potentially is in harm's way versus the actual damage and cost to repair it that, that occurs uh, with the event. Right. Because because we may not get a full loss of, of, of something. Like if there's wind damage on something, it could be a partial loss versus a full loss. And the, the RCV or the reconstruction cost value could is really looking at a full a full loss. Right. And and the part, just to, to build on that a little bit, the part of the model that, 
that really gets into that is what we call the vulnerability model that really mm -hmm. is, you know, having a, a lot of structural engineering behind it and, and, and research as well as data from prior events. And, and that really informs, you know, for a given level of wind speed or flood depth and so on, um, uh, how much of that RCV is it going to take as a percentage of the RCV for a particular type of building for that level of hazard? What is it going to going to take to repair it? Yeah, and that that triggers a thought too, David. That we probably you know education on some of uh, to, for some of our listeners that may not be familiar with catastrophe modeling. That there's several different components that make up a catastrophe model. You've mentioned the vulnerability model. We also have a hazard model. You want to talk just a little bit about the bits that come together on the modeling technology that we use behind getting these these numbers that magically pop out. Yeah, sure, sure. That that might be helpful. Uh, yeah. So at the highest level, there there are three main components. One is the hazard. The second being the vulnerability we just touched on, and the third is typically called the financial model. Uh, so the first hazard is really focused on the event itself. Um, you know, what kind of wind speeds does a hurricane bring with it? Uh, very locally, you know, uh, it varies within the the area affected. Um, the vulnerability we've we've talked about and ultimately that for a given type of building um, you know quantifies the financial uh, cost to repair replace uh, you know following on whatever damage occurred and then the final piece the financial model is is bringing in things like the deductibles and limits we touched on a bit ago uh, sort of the insurance side of things and and other aspects to sort of looking at uncertainty and and really building out a, a full loss estimate, including, you know, quite a few different dimensions, but the highest level, those are the really the three main components. Okay, that that's really helpful context, I think, David, as we get into some of this, and and I want to I want to circle back to loss estimates again because we've got something really timely that's just happened in the last couple of weeks. Is Hurricane Ida made landfall as a, a major hurricane, a strong Category Four hurricane on August 29th. Louisiana was pummeled again. Poor Louisiana um, has been impacted so much by hurricanes in the last year or so. And we've, we've talked about that as well on our podcast too. Um, can we talk about the loss estimate for Hurricane Ida? And Ida was an interesting storm. And, and please get into this too, because the storm continued as it became, you know, continued on as a tropical storm and it hit the Northeast and caused a lot of flooding. So I know we've had a couple of loss estimates for Ida. So can you just talk about what did we learn from Ida? What was interesting and unique about Ida as a storm and what do our loss estimates mean? Yeah. Yeah. So, so Ida came in uh, Sunday morning, I guess. Um, or right around noon uh, central time, I think it was, uh, into Louisiana as a strong category four. Uh, so as you referenced there, there's sort of different pieces to this and and really almost, you know, not strictly true, but almost two distinct areas impacted by the event. So first we had um, really the um, kind of the, the, the three perils all at once uh, in Louisiana and Mississippi primarily and in some surrounding areas. Um, that were, uh, you know, causing a lot of wind damage. Uh, we also had uh, some uh, fairly substantial storm surge with it, as well as uh, quite a bit of rainfall, um, particularly in, in the New Orleans area and immediately west. Uh, fairly significant impact um, for sure. Uh, you know, very major event from that point of view, a lot of, lot of consequence. And then uh, a couple of days later, um, as, as Ida progressed north and east, uh, up into the northeastern US, uh, then we had an additional 
you know, very major set of impacts from rainfall uh, and then the flooding that ensued there. So really major up there as well. And um, and so we've yeah been been uh, scrambling uh, pretty seriously since that uh, Sunday last week, uh, really working on the loss estimates, uh, trying to understand the event, trying to communicate our understanding of the event. So if we look at those two kind of separate events, even though they're both the same Ida, they were very different events that happened from from an insurance perspective, even. Can you kind of talk through some of the losses that we had for Hurricane Ida in, in both parts of it? Sure, yeah. Because of the timing, we we did uh, issue our, uh, you know, loss estimates uh, in two phases. I think one to sort of get the communication out there from, you know, the very serious impacts in, in the Gulf Coast area. And then later, uh, and, and quite recently, we've issued our uh, estimates for the Northeast. So, um, you know, in terms of overall property losses, um, and this includes, as we were talking about before, you know, the insured part, as well as the uninsured, um, in aggregate, about 27 to $40 billion of loss um, in the Gulf Coastal area. And that's from, you know, the combined effects of wind and storm surge and, and rainfall driven flooding. So, you know, a very heavy 27 to $40 billion uh, very major event, you know, very catastrophic for, for many in the area. Uh, of that, uh, our estimate is for about 14 to 21 billion uh, to be insured, so to be covered by, by insurance okay. companies. Um, okay. we, we then went on to the Northeast, uh, which is um, primarily a rainfall-driven flood portion of the event, and, and there uh, the numbers are, are very substantial as well. Um, so, you know, things still unfolding uh, in a lot of ways, but there our estimates are for, uh, again, comprehensively in terms of property damage uh, around 16 to $24 billion, of which about 5 to $8 billion is insured. Uh, so very, very significant, um, really in both areas. Yeah, definitely very significant event. And, and I don't want to overlook the the human impact of the, this event as well. And it has had a substantial impact with a number of lives lost as well, too. And um, from a scientific perspective, what we are trying to do is help understand the financial impact of an event like this. So th that's really the numbers that you were getting into. You know, one thing, David, that kind of stood out in my mind as you were talking is at, off the top of this episode, we talked a little bit about Hurricane Harvey. And in previous podcasts, we've talked about Hurricane Harvey and how the real story there was it being a major flood event that there was so uh, such a high proportion of the event was uninsured. And some of the numbers that you just mentioned, it looks like, especially in the Louisiana, Mississippi area, that the, the gap in insurance for flood was maybe a little bit less. And what what's the reason for that? Like when we looked at Texas, it was 70% insured. It, did have people learned since Hurricane Harvey that flood insurance is important? Or what, what do we think is driving that being a smaller gap? That's right. Yeah. So that definitely is one of the interesting pieces here. Uh, so instead of that 70% being insured, we're seeing here something more like 50 to maybe 60% um, uh, uninsured so certainly substantially less on the flood side, you know, mm -hmm. primarily focused on the Louisiana area um, and, and different things. I mean, I think the, the most hopeful would be that, yes, people are, are you know, seeing the risk and acquiring coverage and, and that, um, you know, kind of gap in coverage is getting smaller. And, and I think that is part of it. Uh, Louisiana 
you know, has had some pretty sig significant events, um, you know, including uh, really major flooding five years ago, uh, focused a little bit farther west, more in the Baton Rouge area, but but certainly uh, would be close, close to mind. Um, the, the other piece also is that a lot of this was in um, in coastal areas, in uh, in areas that are really known for uh, having a lot of flood risk and, and indeed having a lot of territory within those 100 year flood zones. So that's sort of the other side of it that's not necessarily as optimistic, but just reflecting. Right, the mandate. Yeah. Yeah, no, that that's helpful. Thank you. Um, I, I guess the other thing, David, I think of is, you know, when we hear these numbers, a lot of times we're hearing them on the news. Um, but the media is not necessarily the number one priority when we're creating these loss estimates or determining these loss estimates. Who uses these numbers and, and how do they use them? So, so the audience for the loss numbers is, is pretty wide. I think there are a lot of different types of organizations and, and companies and so on that look, look to them. I mean, I think the, uh, the, the closest to our world is CoreLogic is, is across kind of three you know, main types of, of company or, or entity, and that would be insurers, uh, it would be mortgage lenders, and it would be the property owners themselves. Um, so, you know, they all have an interest in as early as possible getting a sense of, you know, what does this mean for them financially? You know, so the insurers are, you know, keen to, uh, you know, manage their risk and stay in business so they can continue, continue to provide that coverage. And so the earlier they can, you know, get a handle on, on what this means, um, there are also aspects of, of what they need to do to react to the event in, in terms mm -hmm. of the adjustment process and, and, and actually the mechanics of, of making the payments that, that provide that coverage. Um, the mortgage lenders similarly, um, you know, want to uh, manage their risk as well. They may uh, be interested in knowing, um, you know, for example, are, are there large numbers of homeowners that have been really severely impacted that may then have trouble paying their mortgage, for example. Um, so sure, there's a lot yeah. of reasons. And, and the property owners, of course, uh, and, and this could be individual homeowners out to, you know, owners of portfolios of commercial property, they, they obviously have a very vested interest in this as well. And, 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 and the general theme is everyone wants to really understand what does this look like um, mm -hmm. as early as possible. And, and, and we're doing everything we can to sort of help with that as the events unfold. Yeah, no, thank you for that. And I guess I, it leads me to think too, we talked a little bit about this when you talked about kind of the components of what goes into building a catastrophe model, but how do we come up with these loss estimates? Do we just pop in the, this is the track of the hurricane, this is the properties at risk, it's bang, it's, this is the number. Like how, how, do we, how do we come up with these loss estimates? Yeah, there's there's actually a lot that goes into it. I mean, certainly having the model in place uh, before the event is a, is a key part of it. But but um, of course, coming up with the specific representation of the event is a really big piece. Um, and I think um, even beyond that, one of the key aspects of the data is is what we call the exposure data itself. So, mm -hmm. uh, you know, a, a database essentially of um, all of the properties uh, throughout the region. Um, be they uh, residential or commercial, along with their characteristics, uh, along with their location, um, and along with um, going back to that RCV, along with that reconstruction cost value. So there's a lot of data that goes into it um, that basically needs to be run through the model once we've developed the representation of the event. 
Um, and that is, is really ultimately what feeds into the loss estimate. Um, in addition, there are things like the insurance conditions, um, including, uh, you know, going back to what we were talking about earlier, the, uh, you know, the fact whether a particular property is even covered at all for that peril, as well as mm -hmm. if it is covered, what kind of deductibles and limits it has. Um, and in terms of the representation of the event itself, this is really dependent on the type of event. I mean, I think, um, you know, hurricane is sort of top of mind here. You know, we've just had Hurricane Ida and so on, but yeah. but certainly we, we do this for other types of events and, and it, it, it may play out differently if it's an earthquake versus the hurricane wind side versus versus sure. flood. But, but generally it, it involves, um, you know, bringing in as much of the available data that we can, whether it's, um, you know, overall um, information about the event, whether it's uh, in the case of hurricane wind, let's say specific wind speed observations uh, throughout the uh, footprint, so to speak, of the event, mm -hmm. uh, to do our best to really have that you know, very sharp representation uh, at a very high resolution of the event that we can then, you know, run against that database of, of properties. Uh, so at the highest level, that's sort of what we're we're talking okay. about. It's really that that property data, um, including very specific uh, locations for it and the valuation, and then our uh, representation of the event and its associated perils at a high resolution. So it, it is a very complex task to really try and sort out. And I, I know a number of times immediately after the storm has hit, we start getting requests for what's the loss estimate and, and they, they can't be done instantly. Like it, it does take a lot of data crunching and, and running models and, and making sure and validating a lot of the storm footprint to make sure we can get that. And, and I know with Ida in particular, we needed to wait for the rain to stop falling before we could start the loss estimate um, because it may have looked like the event was over because the hurricane had passed, but there was still a lot of rain falling. So I think uh, those are all important things that go into when you're calculating this big number, there's a lot of complexities and interdependencies that go into getting it. So yeah, that's absolutely right. Okay. So last question. Um, I think just as we wrap up here, when people read about the events that have happened, they may come across different loss estimates from different companies. What, why are they different? Why do different companies come up with different losses? And one company may say an event is five to $10 billion and one may say seven to $15 billion. What, what do you think is the, can be attributed to why different companies or different models come up with different estimates? That, that's a great question. That's probably on the minds of anyone that's looked, you know, very much at uh, at loss estimates like this. I mean, I think a lot of times, kind of first and foremost, you need to read carefully mm -hmm. to make sure you're seeing an apples to apples comparison. I think that's probably the biggest right. thing. You know, what exactly is being estimated? What's being included and not included? We have this uh, insured versus total loss. Uh, dichotomy we have, you know, which sub perils are included? Are we including inland flood or aren't we? Uh, are we including, um, you know, losses covered by the National Flood Insurance Program, for example, right. um, and so on. So that's, I think, really the main, you know, thing to start out with. Uh, make sure that you're you're comparing like for like. Um, you know, one, one other thing I'd say is that in the early days of an event, um, and I feel like there's been more of this uh, over the last few years than, than there was prior, there are sometimes some very high level estimates put out by organizations that aren't so much doing any modeling per se, but they're really looking at, um, you know, kind of top level estimates 
probably by referencing similar events that have occurred in the past uh, and attempting to adjust for the differences in the event. You know, again, um, the the world is hungry for these estimates, right? It's uh, it's everyone wants to, as soon as they can, get a a glimpse into what things are likely to look at for them financially. Um, And so, you know, that's that's one uh, one way to meet the need. Those estimates that are really kind of very high level. Uh, sometimes they're in the right ballpark, but they can often vary uh, pretty widely. Um, you know, I would just say that, um, you know, when we kind of get back to the the kind of modeling we do, the, the better the data and the modeling that you have and that you bring together to, to produce these estimates, you know, usually the closer you can be to the mark. Um, and I would say, sort of a caveat there, is that there are events that, that sometimes occur that are that are just different enough from what's happened before that uh, that pretty much everybody trying to do these estimates uh, may miss the mark, um, sometimes from the low side. Um, and Hurricane Katrina in, in 2005 was one like that. I think just just the magnitude of what happened in New Orleans uh, with levee failure and, and just the enormous storm surge and everything uh, was, was a challenge because it was just so different from what pretty much everyone had observed up to that point. Um, you know, the good news is that the, the data and the models are always getting better. Um, and we are learning uh, from each event as we go on. So, you know, kind of the likelihood of, of really big surprises, uh, you know, I, I do believe is going down, not, not to say that, you know, going to zero, but they are, are going down. Yeah, and I think that's probably one of my favorite things about what we do, David, is that we are constantly learning. And every time another event happens, we learn something from it and it helps us refine what we do. So this has been so interesting and timely, David. So thank you so much for coming on today to be a part of Core Conversations, a CoreLogic podcast. Thanks, McClare. This has been great. I'm very glad to uh, have been part of the podcast. Awesome. Well, we'll have to do this again, maybe when we have another damaging event. Not that we hope for them, but uh, it's always good to add a little bit more insights into events after they happen because to help people understand, because as we say here at CoreLogic, to know your risk helps you to accelerate your recovery. So for more information on the property market and the housing economy, please visit us at corelogic.com intelligence. And for information specifically about hazard events, please do visit us at hazard hq.com. Thanks for listening. I hope you've enjoyed our latest episode. Please remember to leave us a review and let us know your thoughts and subscribe wherever you get your podcast to be notified when new episodes are released. And thanks to the team for helping bring this podcast to life. Producer Rhea Tarakia, editor and sound engineer Romy Roman, and our social media team. Tune in next time for another Core Conversation.